Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. In our back and forth, you pitched me the idea of deliberate controversy. So what does that mean to you? Great art should provoke. It isn't up to people to tell the artist what they want. So looking at, at films where the filmmaker seems to have gone out of their way to be deliberately provocative for one reason or another. And the films we'll be watching are Dragged Across Concrete, Last Tango in Paris, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, Basic Instinct, Monty Python's Life of Brian, The Last Temptation of Christ, Bamboozled, and 2,000 Mules. Do you remember Premiere Magazine? Yes. I do too. <laughs> and among the very first episodes of Premiere Magazine that I bought, and this would have been the middle of the 1980s, was their then comprehensive look at sex and movies. I was a newly horny, sap-rising-and-young-Garrett guy and thought, this will be the one for me, and I was able to get my parents five bucks or wherever it cost to buy it because it was about movies and I knew this was a budding interest. But I got it. And Last Tango in Paris was basically number one. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't even heard of it. This was my first glimpse. And as I recount the imagery that was included in the magazine, what I think it featured was a scene of Marlon Brando, nude, with uh, his co-star, Maria Schneider, sitting astride him, also nude, and his arm just so, so you can't see her areolas. And I thought, ooh, that is so hot! (laughs) (laughs) There were other titles included in this list. Probably eight or ten of the different titles just sat in my head. These are things young Garrett must see. I think Clockwork Orange was in the list to give you an impression of where things were. Postman Always Rings Twice. I go off to film school. I'm feeling my airs. I've got to be serious about this. Yeah, absolutely. Last Tango shows up again in one of my first textbooks. And, ooh, this seems to be by an important artist called Bertolucci. Yeah. So I go rent a copy on videotape, panned and scanned, uh, that had been seen so many times that no doubt it was Those down. tracking lines just keep going up totally. the screen through the whole movie. And I definitely put it in my machine. I definitely pressed play. I definitely watched it through, ejected it, and returned to the video stand. <laughs> And what I remember about the movie is not at all what you and I just watched to set up our conversation. Right. As a middle-aged person, that's shocking to me because I know this is a movie I turned to to fill up my erotic imagination. And I watched it with great disappointment back then. And I have watched it now with a different kind of disappointment from the world (laughs) of today. What's your relationship with this movie? I think I made a conscious decision or I I had a, a realization that oh, I actually kind of really do like movies, especially once I'd been introduced to some artsier, for lack of a better term, you know, fair, and responded well to it, I kind of felt like, oh, I should follow this path. Mm -hmm. I, too, had a list, and Last Tango in Paris has been on that list. This is the story about an extremely recently widowed man. Paul, played by Marlon Brando, who is so deeply 
in the dumps because his wife killed herself. And he meets a woman who wants to rent an apartment that he also has an attachment to. They have sex immediately and anonymously. They mutually agree they'll try not to share personal details of one another and make this apartment their erotic redoubt simply to screw. It gets more complicated, but in the end, he becomes fixated on her and she kills him. Last Tango in Paris! (laughs) She's got a boyfriend, and this actor was the boy actor in Truffaut's early work and in Godard's early work. So he's he's playing a version of himself. Was it it the kid from 400 Blows? It is. Is it really? It's in. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's playing a version of the men who brought him into the entertainment industry. He's the boyfriend of Jean, Maria Schneider's character. This is uh, Jean-Pierre Leo playing Thomas. So there's this funny interplay between him trying to both woo her and celebrate her as the object of his movie within a movie that she sort of goes for and also pulls away from. She sort of loves him, but he's kind of milquetoast when compared to this mysterious American. Now, this is a Brando tour de force Mm. that does not make him likable. I found him terribly irritating at the very same time that I noticed virtually everything that he was doing. It's like he was preparing himself in his middle 40s for getting fat, losing his hair, and playing Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Right. Because many of the same mannerisms that would show up on a rotund Brando at the end of the 1970s are being tried out here. Mm. The way he uses his hands, the way he deliberately looks away from his co-stars, won't make eye contact, the oddness of his delivery, which has always been the case. But here... At the decline and the last moments of his physical beauty, because he's still a beautiful man. Mm. He's got that wonderful nose. He's got a full head of hair. Yeah. He's wearing rad pastel clothes. But he does other things that are odd in this movie as well. Because of the terms of how they cohabit inside of this, this sex apartment, they cluck at each other. They make noises at each other. They tell each other nonsense stories that suggest they're telling the truth. But it's never clear that they are. They might simply be amusing one another. Their whole relationship inside of this apartment is appetitive. Very little is off the plate, Mm. metaphorically and literally, except for the truths of who they are outside of the room. As somebody walking into this theater space in late 1972 to bump into this movie, I have to imagine that it was absolutely breathtaking to be exposed to some of the stuff that it exposes you to. Like saying cunt and fuck and dick and cock and pussy. Yeah. And looking at Pudenda and seeing butt cheeks. Mm -hmm. And there's bared breasts for whole sequences of this. Mm -hmm. The butter scene, where he uses butter to lubricate himself and anally penetrate her. Yes. The fact that she returns the favor and anally penetrates him with her fingers in an odd pegging scene. As it lands in the movie today, it's still extraordinary, sure. But I don't know why it's important. (laughs) I don't know, is this art? Clearly it is, but I don't know that it matters to me. I kind of struggled with the same thing a little bit because I was expecting to just be fully aware of all at all times of the the greatness of this film. And I don't know if it's just my ignorance. I don't know if it's just the fact that the film is 50 years old now. It felt like a film that was trying to imitate a French film. Well, here's a small little takeaway. Maybe you noticed in the credits that in the French language sequences, they employed the services of Agnes Varda, mm-hmm. who is one of the French New Wave filmmakers, right. who only recently died 
after a 60-year-long career making French movies in French. Yeah. So they employed her to help patch up the idiom of French speech to make some of those conversational moments land, which is all the more interesting because, of course, the origination of this is the Italian filmmaker Bernardo Bertolucci. Yeah, which is what I kept telling myself. I'm like, well, but it's it's an Italian guy making it. Right. And it's, it's, it's seemingly a, a personal story for him. Uh, I found myself frustrated quite a bit. One thing that got me is, so right off the bat, we get this conversation where Brando, you know, he makes it explicitly clear, like, I don't want to know your name, I'm not going to tell you mine, that's not what any of this is about. But by the very nature of spending time with somebody and being intimate with somebody, you can't avoid knowing who they are. And this is the tail end of the same year where he was the godfather. Yeah. So that's an important realization. Right. And this is fully 25 years into his life as an actor professionally, which means when he shot this movie, I think he was around 46 or 47. Mm. I'm now 49. By the time this movie comes out, we're virtually the same age. I have a child who's about to be 19. The age of his co-star at the time they shot it was 19. Yeah. So I kept thinking about this movie as me dating one of the friends of my daughter. Right. That's and, great. <laughs> and, and so it, it felt weird to watch because, yeah. of course, there are reasons why each of these two participants could be into each other. Well, one, they are adults. Sure. I mean, it they, happens. Uh, traditionally, all the time. Women, women generally seem to prefer older men. And I can see certain physical reasons why because I do think that slightly older men than teenagers... Mm. They've developed a full body versus skinny little boys who are still turning into their adult selves. But, but leaving those things aside, that was on my mind, which I guess in another circumstance we'd dress up as an Oedipal problem. Right. Clearly she's got some hang-up for an authoritative, mysterious, weirdo guy. Mm-hmm. Brando fits that role just so. And of course I understand why it is that a heterosexual elder man, a middle-aged dude my age... Mm-hmm would respond to the body and interest of a young person who is an adult, so consent is okay, you don't need to feel cagey about that. Her hair is lush, she's thin, she's got muscles where you want muscles to be, Mm. and she's not chubby where you don't want chubby to be, all the stuff, right? Mm. And it's also clear that they have a kind of bluntness because they don't have the artifact of friendship that sets them up. Right. He's not concerned with where she was in sixth grade or what her favorite meal is. And she doesn't know that he's just been widowed. Right. So the mysteries put us into an ironic position as we deal with each character. We watch her deal with her boyfriend, Thomas, and engage him and his film crew in this odd documentary essay he seems Mm -hmm. to be constructing. And we learn a fair amount about her history. That's roped off, though, because we don't see any of that being shared with Paul. Likewise... We watch Paul deal with the people at his hotel, who largely uses his hotel as a by-the-hour facility to do drugs, yeah. sex work, yeah, and the like. prostitutes. We watch him deal with uh, the mortuary and with his mother-in-law, suffering the loss of the daughter. We watch him memorably address his dead wife when she has been arranged in preparation for a wake. Our marriage was nothing more than a, a foxhole for you. And all it took for you to get out was a 35-cent razor and a tub full of water. You cheap, goddamn, fucking, godforsaken whore. I hope you rot in hell. You're worse than the dirtiest street pig that anybody could ever find anywhere. And you know why? You know why? Because you lied. You lied to me, and I trusted you. You lied. You knew you were lying. By the time the movie is finished, and she does shoot him, and he lies sprawled in a fetal position, I read the symbol of that 
that she is ejecting the sort of fetal development of her own immaturity and casting it out. The movie concludes by listening to her rehearse what she's going to say to the police. As she says these things... We think, this is really mean. You know a lot about him. But then we hear what she's saying. She doesn't know the dead wife. Right. She can just say, as she does, this man started following me. Right. He wouldn't leave me alone. I want to know your name. I felt endangered and I shot it. The whole journey we're watching, because Paul is the first character we meet in the story world, and he's howling to an overground train. What we're looking at from his point of view is his own suicide response to his wife's killing of herself. Mm -hmm. He can't seem to find a way in life outside of that relationship, except for this brief aside with this younger woman, and he's goading her through the course of the piece, finally to murder him. Yeah. Now, that, that's one read. Another is a young woman who can't quite commit to this milk toast boyfriend meets a mysterious, interesting stranger who helps her explore appetites she maybe knew she had but wants to sort of feel more fully. And certainly before you settle down, you and become the milk toast wife oats. to milk toast. Yeah. Right. They sow a lot of oats in that apartment, but she outgrows the relationship, shoots in fetal position. The baby is expunged. It's a kind of a symbolic abortion. Mm. And then from the perspective of it being an art movie, Bertolucci was able to get away with a lot of profanity, a lot mm-hmm. of sexual intimacy, and a lot of fairly blunt observations about how people behave on that point. One of the things that Brando is famous for is the way he acknowledges his body. And I mean that very specifically. Here he's got a full head of hair and he's always scratching himself. Mm-hmm. And there's a way that it's like, you're so unkempt. But a lot of us scratch ourselves. So we watch him behave in those ways. He, he's very interested in material objects. He grabs things from his surrounding, rubs them on his face, he crawls around on the floor. He seems at very comfortable with the base nature of his physical reality. And of course, most performers are on airs above things. Brando isn't. He's down in kind of the muck. Yeah. So when they begin exploring the sexual nature of their relationship, which involves all of the orifices you can imagine, it makes sense they would do this. Mm. It's very clear that this movie is about the functions of a body, which are not divorced from the elevated ideas of sexual intimacy, which many of us in America really rope off. The toilet goes over there. Right. The bedroom goes over there. These things shouldn't meet because, although some of the same organs are used, we don't want to talk about that right. stuff. Right. This sort of relationship with a younger woman and an older man, it's very common to, like, Europeans. But in America... It's, it's like, weird. Well, you read it as I do. I'm dating my kid's friend. Right. Which feels strange. Right. But, I mean, she's an adult. Well, Her right, right. They're both adults. Yeah. In fact, in fact, it's, it's funny because today's, the, like, a, a lot of the stuff I read online, the, the sensibilities, like, 19 is, is a teenager. Even though that's technically legal, that's morally Wrong. reprehensible. Yeah. But, you know, then is that not removing the agency from an adult? Yeah. To suggest that any relationship with an age divide is predatory. Well, one reason why I know this movie was, in its way, deliberately controversial, our theme, mm. is uh, this filmmaker, Bertolucci, deliberately employed some of his own sexual fantasy, some, I think, his literal dreams, yeah. inscribed in notebooks, to develop a script about a May-December romance of sorts, mm. and then 
blasted it through with really intense emotional pain having to do with the loss of a spouse. We also know that Paul's character, the way he's honestly described by the people outside of the room with Jean, he's had a hard scrabble life. And it appears that his marriage to Rosa may have been the most stable thing for him that he met in his middle years. Mm -hmm. They didn't know each other as young people. They were not long marrieds. When I think about my, my marriage, and I think about the life that I enjoy with her, one of the things that we certainly are aware of with one another is stages of undress, the sounds we make while we're sleeping. Mm. And a lot of those things are carefully removed from most American movies because they're not perceived as very interesting. Right. And yet there's one really interesting sequence in this movie where that's the whole point. We watch Paul bathe Jean mm. as if she's a, an infant. Mm. And she submits to it because there's a way it's kind of fun. He soaps her hair, soaps her body, has her stand and make sure that he's gotten everything clean mm -hmm. and it helps her dry her off. And they're bantering, sometimes cruelly, sometimes in a way that's almost a humiliating or undignified tone. But she's given it back to him in the same way that he's giving it to her. That is, they're not fully getting along with one another, but they're doing a very close, observed habit of personal care, a bath. Right. Now, there's no good reason for it. That dialogue could have been handed out having coffee on the floor of the apartment. Yeah, taking a walk. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, and, and of course, it's it's deliberately controversial because she's naked the whole time. Mm -hmm. He's clothed the whole time. And that emphasizes the objectification of this woman's body. And all of that can be upsetting to some viewers. But when you pull that aside, there have been whole sequences of my intimate private life as a married person where I'm semi-dressed and she isn't. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't feel weird or foul. Right. It just feels like part of how my life sometimes works, depending on the season. So this movie deliberately puts the camera inside of that, violating the norms of what's considered domestic or closed or intimate or private, and uses that as its point whenever they're inside of the apartment. Mm. That's what brings to light the premier article about sex in movies, because we watch them having various kinds of sex. Yeah. Some of it does not seem literally clean, some of it doesn't seem to be affirming. Some of it doesn't seem to be something both parties have agreed to perform, which leads the movie to the tones and the complaints that it's it's a filmed rape, mm -hmm. which I know that various members of the cast, Schneider and Brando, both claimed they felt Bertolucci raped them in some yeah, ways yeah. with the camera. That doesn't land on me very well because they're performers. <laughs> These people don't seem to like each other very much, but for some reason, they have enough animal magnetism to get into the sex part, which makes his sudden turn to I love you at the end of the movie a cagey, difficult thing. When they meet on the street and he wants to pursue her outside of the apartment, she's not cool. She's not interested anymore. And, and it looks weird because they're both in overcoats outside, exposed to the elements in public, right. not in the intimacy of right. the apartment building. And they, they go to this, this tango contest. She gives them a rub and tug while they're getting terribly drunk. And it's kind of a kiss-off. This is the last thing you're getting from Right. Me. The last and hand job in Paris. Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, he sort of defined the 1970s in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because uh, he bookmarks this decade by finishing it out, I think, with Coppola having done Apocalypse, Apocalypse now, now and various other important works, and he wasn't even 40 years old. So he had a very mature eye 
and brings it to bear on this because although this movie is rather base, the imagery is quite lovely. It's well lit. They glow. Oh yeah. They look they look handsome to use that sort of silly term. Yeah. But it's true. And like any movie that's this old, I'm terribly impressed with the fashion or what oh, now yeah. seems like bad fashion, but they get no, away with it. It's wonderful. They're, it's like they just they it's like they, they just leaned hard into something that shouldn't have made any sense. And yet now it's like, oh, wow, it's like amazing. Yeah, I would like to have his turtleneck and his trousers yeah. and his tall boot combinations. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't mind at all having a few of her sweaters. I mean, <laughs> they just they look really nice that way. But, of course, it's completely not what people look like today. Right, so oh, yeah. It's always a sort of look back into that fashionable moment of that time in that city. Or we assume, because in that respect, this is kind of documentary-like. Another issue, they don't seem turned out by the gym. She has... A fit, natural, young person's healthy body. Right. He has a fit, healthy, natural, middle-aged man's body. I thought about that when I left this movie, knowing that my early relationship to it said that it was basically right on the border with pornography. And then watching it as at this age and coming out the other side, the pornography that I look at is so far past what yeah, this, this is, is often. absolutely nothing like you know even even the even the pornography of the golden age when they used to do film like and they had right. stories and acting right. is nothing like this. Maybe we can come without touching. People turned out to look at this racy material, so this movie's value as a kind of cultural object is partly because it forced a certain number of adults to give themselves permission to go seek out this unusual story. And then going home and thinking to themselves, how can I convince who I'm with to do some of this with me or see if I like it? But at the very same time, you do have a deep throat or you have Behind the Green Door or you have all of those classic movies that show up that go ahead and just give you the bodies doing the thing. Right. Did you come yet? (laughs) No. It's difficult. I didn't either yet. Because this movie is about several different stories being crammed together, there's the story of Jean and her boyfriend and him wanting to make a movie about her as a celebration of their love relationship. Mm -hmm. There's the story of this widower dealing with the death of his wife and trying to give her awake and and put her to rest. There's a relationship of these two people who meet and have a lot of sex. If we restrict ourselves to the anonymous room where they have all the sex, this is a 40-minute long movie. Yeah. Because if the terms of this movie are... They're not to know anything about one another's lives. The objective correlative for us as the audience is we shouldn't either. Right. And that would be a more rigorously and formalistically true experience. The degree to which we all forget Thomas and the love affair with her actual boyfriend, none of us really focus on that. So it's ejectable. But that's the most self-consciously about making a European art movie of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Because we're watching Thomas's crew members make a movie within the movie. The degree to which it's about the sexual intimacy and exploration of this weird experimental space they form together, sort of tragically, is maybe the most provocative, Mm. but also it doesn't have that many wheels. Once they put it in every orifice, once they make out a few times, you're done. It's not interesting anymore. And then the added problem of him struggling through the death of his wife, that's the most emotionally impactful. I do appreciate the way we get inside Jean's mind as well, and this notion that you know she does love this guy and Thomas, Thomas, yeah, yeah, and and does want to, or at least part of her does want to settle down with him and kind of, but then also kind of having you know these sort of reservations about it, and you know not being fully ready to commit. There's a Roger Vadim film, um, and God Created Woman, I think is is almost like. It's almost like if you took just John's story 
and made it a movie by itself. I like the idea that this is connected with a tradition of what a liberated modern woman might feel Mm -hmm. coming into her powers as an adult, realizing that among her powers is youth, sexual attraction, her own appetites, and her pursuit of pleasure, but also how fleeting all of that is. Right, and these expectations by society... And a lot of that's male-dominated and framed. Men are going to want, so enjoy the want until you decide what you wish to reciprocate. Right. And Paul clearly is not the right object for any of that reciprocation. And it's not clear that Thomas is either, because he also wishes to objectify her as the object of his movie within a movie. Right. So perhaps you're right. Maybe the best way to unwind this movie is that it's Jean's story of maturing mm-hmm. and is somebody who's self-conscious of her desires yeah. and of her willingness to submit to the, the powers of another and instead exert agency because she brings out the damn pistol and shoots this guy for right. being in her way. What's your bottom line reaction to Last Tango in Paris? I, I, like, I'm not seeing it. But then, thinking about it afterwards, letting kind of, you know, the gears turn slowly as they do, I, you know, I guess I really do think that it does deserve the attention that it's got. But I don't know that I want to watch it again. Yeah, that's right. It it sits with me as something clearly it's important. It's influenced a lot. I want to point out something about its release pattern. It is a New York Film Festival release from October in 72. So it was in the can by the end of the summer. It debuts at the New York Film Festival. It begins to have a buzz. Mm. But this is, of course, before we have saturation booking. So that that means they're setting up the platform, and they open up that platform in January when it actually goes into release in this country. I'm imagining the week that it went in release, the very end of January, it was probably in no more than 15 or 20 screens. And right. these would have been physical prints, you know, in those big, nice oh, yeah. canisters, sent out at great expense with the hope that they're just going to run continuously until the film just breaks and has to be disintegrated mm-hmm. or a new new uh, copy is struck. And it probably did that across this country in no more than 100 theaters for months and months and months, probably in the deep 1973, maybe even beyond, let alone what it did in the wider world. And against that strategy, the more people who have this kind of conversation you and I are having where somebody's like, ah, oh, aren't her boobs beautiful? And look <laughs> at his butt and those trousers because certainly people have said these oh, things. Yeah. And the ability to have excitable conversation at this moment in 72 is exactly the, the wind in a sail that any thoughtful movie would hope to inspire. Right. And because of that, I can sweep in the rug some other titles that were in release at about the same time. That When this thing shows up in January, people were already sort of digesting the getaway and across 110th Street from late 72. Mm-hmm. I want to emphasize the getaway because that's Peck and Paw. Yeah. And he has another release within six months, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, by the time we get into setting up the summer season of 73. Right. When this movie is definitely in release. But a couple of other odd things people might well, have wanted to go see. Well, the getaway is, is, I don't know, I guess the relationship between uh, Steve McQueen and Alan McGraw is not, not exactly a parallel, but I mean, we kind of have almost a similar sort of a thing. He's a violent criminal guy. He's and kind, of, kind of kidnapped and seduced her in right, this caper. Right, right, but she's kind of maybe Hot Stockholm Syndrome yeah. her into it. Yeah, so that's uh, interesting to me. But let me just emphasize again, this is a non-American movie. Whole tracks of this thing are conducted in French where you got to read subtitles. Yeah. There were other non-American movies that had some good business during this period, but perhaps the most notable to me is The Harder They Come From Jamaica, mm-hmm. which again is in Patois, it is in English mostly, but that is a really interesting 
difficult movie that is often stacked yeah. up as a black exploitation movie because it's about black folks on a screen. And by the time the season wraps up, and the season, I mean the six-month or so period from its debut to roughly May, early summer 73, I saw that Francois Truffaut released his semi-autobiographical movie, Day for Night, mm-hmm. which is about movie makers on a movie shoot, shooting Day for Night, having all kinds of mixed-up love affairs, professional obstacles and problems. That's a French movie. Yeah. Now, that doesn't measure up to this level of financial success, but it certainly got people's attention. And along the way, you have the normal kinds of box office. Pablum, you have Soylent Green comes out during this period. The Long Goodbye comes out in this period. You have John Landis. I don't think it's quite his debut, but it might be with Schlock. Right. This is a very interesting period of movies that go in all kinds of directions to try to land in all kinds of different targeted audiences. And none of the movies during this period would have opened coast to coast in this country. There's some butter in the kitchen. So you're here. What did you answer? Go get the butter. I have to hurry. I have a cab downstairs waiting. Go get the butter. Would Brando have been hesitant to engage in butt sex if all they had was margarine? This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop, boopity-doo. 